0: y'all you're listening to in the corner back by the woodpile i'm spun canner guy thanks for stopping by welcome to another installment of american history homework the series where we mine my old papers from grad school On this episode, it's all about the Articles of Confederation versus the Constitution. Don't know what either of those are? Well, fret no more, because you're about to get more than you ever dreamed. In July 1776, the American colonists officially separated from Britain and so had to quickly put together a government. This was vital if they were to survive as a nation, especially while it was in the middle of a war with the most powerful empire on the planet. So by November of 1777, the Articles of Confederation was approved. Some elements missing from the kind of government that most of us are familiar with was the office of the presidency, a Supreme Court, and a Senate. While the Articles of Confederation allowed the new nation to function, By the close of the American Revolution, its weaknesses had become so obvious that calls for its restructuring were called for. Fears were high throughout the new nation. A group calling themselves the Federalist feared that the country wouldn't be able to make the necessary changes, which they thought, if not made, would doom the nation's already fragile existence. The fears of those who became known as the Anti-Federalist were that the Federalists wanted to create a powerful, unchecked central government that would would smell much like the British tyranny which the country had just overthrown. The Articles of Confederation was, for its time and place, the best structure the colonies could form, and in spite of its failings, did at least keep the country together through roughly ten years, seven of those during the American Revolution. Its purpose was for quote, the said states hereby severely enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, binding themselves to assist each other against all force offered to or attacks made upon them or in any of them on account of religion, sovereignty, trade, or any other pretense, whatever, Unquote. But by 1787, the young nation had, quote, reached almost the last stage of national humiliation, unquote, Federalist 15, given it was still occupied by British troops and was unable to pay its foreign debts, among other problems. Because the Confederation's ideas of security of liberty, common defense, and general welfare were inadequately executed, the Article spirit, it was thought, would be better fulfilled through its successor, the United States Constitution. Here's a list of some of the ways the Constitution better fulfilled those particular intentions of the Confederation. 1. It created a central government. Under the Articles of Confederation, the only somewhat centralized power was the national legislature, which by design was weak. The initial idea was that the states would keep their sovereignty and in good faith come together when needed to address a national problem, whether it was for the sake of security, trade, economic matters, or any other common need. But in actual execution, the states generally did not come together, and in the few times that they did, it was half-hearted. Some of the most glaring manifestations of the state's inability to accomplish its stated purpose was the almost-failed resistance to the British Army during the Revolutionary War, confusion with other nations regarding each state's ability to make separate treaties, chaos and conflict in regards to the state's various contradicting laws, and an unstable economy caused by no unified currency. Thus, the Constitution created a uniform government where national laws would trump conflicting state laws, interstate disputes could be settled at the federal level, treaties would be forged between the central government, and various nations, and a uniform national economy would be fostered. And we'll talk more about those specifics here in a little bit. Two, the Constitution created the federal judicial branch. As mentioned before, one of the problems created by the Articles of Confederation was the inability for states to resolve issues with each other. In addition, if individual citizens had a conflict between themselves and their state governments, often the House won, so to speak. In both cases, there was little higher power to call upon to settle the disputes. Some of the conflicts between some states were so sharp, Alexander Hamilton predicted a civil war in the then very near future if some entity over the whole was not enacted. Hence the Constitution's Article 3, Section 1 establishing, quote, "The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one supreme court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish." Unquote. All conflicts could be appealed to the more powerful federal courts for some kind of settlement. 3. Forming a single executive. Under the articles There was no one figure to head the country, which would pose problems firstly when Congress was not in session. Even if the respective congressmen were in town, the process of ruling by committee was slow considering delegates from each state had an equal say. Obvious problems in any case of too many cooks in the kitchen were that in the debates on what actions the nation were to take, men's egos and ambitions were often bruised leading to foster bitterness and sabotaging of others' efforts, usually in displays of dying on dumb hills, that's my words, the appearance of factions, confusion as to who was actually in charge, and who was to blame for poor decisions, just to name a few. The same spectacles could be witnessed even in the various state governments. Of course, in any situation where more than one person is involved in the decision-making process, similar results are sure to show themselves. Look at our own modern Senate and Congress. But such encumbersome slogs could mean the life or death of a nation, particularly in the event of war, when actions had to be executed swiftly. Thus Alexander Hamilton would argue in Federalist 70 that installing one individual at the government's helm with specific limited powers would create what he called energy that would increase the ability for decisiveness, quote, activity, secrecy, and dispatch. Unquote. By creating the office of the single person president, the Constitution removed a giant tangle of trouble, especially in the event of its existence being threatened. 4. Ability to raise revenue. With the pre revolutionary fears of a central government taking whatever it wanted from the populace, the Articles of Confederation did not give the National Congress ability to raise money but instead left them to depend on the individual states to send money. This was a near catastrophe during the American Revolution, where each of the states were supposed to provide money and supplies, including arms, clothing, equipment, and food, for the soldiers under General George Washington's command. When called upon to do so, their responses ranged from slow to inadequate to none at all. At times, Washington had to rely on sources outside the government, and country even, my favorite being the Ladies of Havana, a group of sympathetic Cuban women who managed to raise in silver the equivalent of $25 million in today's money. General Washington repeatedly called upon the national legislature to pressure the states to pony up these required items to fight the war. Trouble was that the Congress had no recourse or way to penalize the states for not fulfilling the required obligations. While the states certainly didn't want to lose the revolution, the legislators of the state were also not eager about losing their jobs by angering their constituents with taxes. Not a surprising situation, considering the revolution had partly came about over the issue of taxes. Thus, very little state government assistance materialized. The visible results were many men in Washington's army fighting barefoot in the snow and starving to death to boot, which nearly lost the war for the Americans. By declaring, quote, The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, the Constitution made a way for the national government to get out from under the whims and pussyfooting of the states and be able to independently take care of its pressing financial problems and to deal with any future actions that would require money. 5. Created a National Army Under the Articles of Confederation, the country had no central army but instead had set it up to where each of the state's militias were to be available to the nation for any conflict. This arrangement proved nearly disastrous again during the American Revolution, as that states sent only what numbers of men they thought they could spare. These were insufficient in their numbers and were slow in arriving. General Washington fought the war as best he could, with mostly ragtag volunteers struggling to create a unified, uniform force. And had it not been for the military assistance from the French, more than likely, the British would have triumphed. Besides, another war was surely to come to the country's doorstep in the then near future, most probably from Britain again, or possibly the Spanish, who had been lurking in territories near the U.S. In fact, even in the mid-1780s, the British army had still not left many of their outposts in the colonies, even after the Revolutionary War was over, and as was required according to the Treaty of Paris. Why would they? There was no national army to help them pack their bags. In addition, there had been small internal domestic insurrections among Americans themselves, most famously, Shays' Rebellion, where nearly no force was available to answer their threats and violence. Hence, the Constitution sought to remedy the problem with its declaration that, quote, "...the President shall be the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States." and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States, Six, created a unified monetary policy. As mentioned before, with the Articles of Confederation, the states all had their own form of currencies and economic policies, which were problematic in many ways, For one, it retarded the trade between individual states. Trying to exchange one currency for another was both tedious, costly, and a source of contention, especially when trying to determine the worth of one state's units against another. Also, other countries were unenthused about trading with Americans because of both the complication of having to deal with each state individually and because of the unstable economies brought about by the fractured monetary uncertainties and instabilities. There was also the mounting unpaid debt the U.S. had amassed chiefly in the Revolutionary War, with no visible plan in sight towards its repayment. The instability of the economy also threatened the stability of the nation itself in a real tangible way, as pointed out in Federalist 6, where, quote, If Daniel Shays of the Rebellion bearing his name had not been a desperate debtor, it is much to be doubted whether Massachusetts would have been plunged into a civil war, unquote. So in declaring, quote, to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin, and fix the standards of weights and measures, unquote, in Article 1, Section 8, the Constitution removed the ability of the states to coin money by reserving that right to the national government only. This enabled the federal government to establish not only uniformity, but stabilize the economy, provide confidence in foreign trade relations, and to pay down the national debt. 7. Established Federalism Quote, We may define a republic to be a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people. Unquote. James Madison Federalist 39 While some state governments executed the spirit of republicanism better than others, the national government under the Constitution would become a balance of democracy and indirect democracy, given the people direct control to elect their representatives in Congress states control over the senate, electors of the state over the executive, and the executive over the judiciary. In this mix, the tyrannies of mob rule, aristocracies, bureaucracy, and other entities that had plagued other nations throughout history as becoming oppressive when not checked were all kept at bay and dependent on one another, which leads us to eight, better separated powers. The colonists, which had the failure of the British system to check its own powers fresh in their minds, saw the problem having stemmed from the centralized power of the monarch being aided and abetted by his benefactors and sycophants in the parliament. James Madison reflected that, quote, it will not be denied that power is of an encroaching nature and that it ought to be effectually restrained from passing the limits assigned to it, unquote. And also, quote, but what is a government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In forming a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself, unquote. It was initially argued that the best way to keep a tyranny from forming was that the states would keep their autonomy from the central government, which would serve to be the checks on its power. This structure was supposed to limit corruption and abuse of power, but in spite of the general consensus that the separation of powers was essential to averting abuses of power, nearly all of the states' own constitutions failed to do that very thing, Federalist 47 gives one such example. New Jersey's constitution allowed the executive governor, whom was appointed by the legislature, to be a member of the Supreme Court of Appeals and could also vote in one of the legislative branches. In addition, quote, the same legislative branch acts again as executive counsel to the governor and with him constitutes the Court of Appeals, unquote. The judiciary was appointed by the legislative and also handled impeachments. Federalist 47 goes on to give examples of most every state's constitutions where the powers fail to be separated in spite of the many of the state members' declarations to the contrary. Virginia, for example, states, quote, that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments shall be separate and distinct, unquote. Yet their legislature had the powers to fill executive and judicial spots in addition to other various powers of removals, appointments, and pardons. Thomas Jefferson himself an anti-federalist, pointed out that in Virginia, quote, the judiciary and executive members were left dependent on the legislative subsistence in office and some of them for their continuance in it. If therefore the legislative assumes executive and judiciary powers, no opposition in like is to be made, unquote. In other words, if your employment and paycheck were decided by the same group of people, it would not be in your best interest to go against them and their legal wishes. Also, with their unchecked powers, according to Thatch's creation of the presidency, the state legislatures at times were seen as, quote, instruments of evil, unquote, especially in regards to their meddling in local economies by printing near-worthless paper money to pay for the state's debts, enacting debtor laws, and restricting commerce, which, quote, played havoc with commercial prosperity, unquote. Their actions, while hurtful to the public, often benefited the legislator's, such as in the case of Pennsylvania and the Bank of North America where representatives, quote, in prosecuting their private gain amassed large sums of money, unquote, all of which couldn't be accounted for well enough to be taxed even. Another feature of many of the state constitutions that seemed to negate the point of them having an executive branch was the lack of veto power on the part of the governors. This created seemingly very little check on the power of the legislators, to the point that even if they violated their own constitutional powers, there was really nothing to oppose or discipline them. Madison so accurately described the situation when he said in Federalist 47, quote, accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands may justly be pronounced as the very definition of tyranny, unquote. The anti Federalist feared any strong power might make itself into an absolute power and so argued for more power to be put into the will of the democratic process via the legislatures. But the trouble was that legislatures had in many states become slow-moving, often ineffective and protective of their own self-interest. Madison warned in Federalist 58 of the danger of inefficient democracies creating a tyranny in the face of some crisis to get things done, so to speak. Quote, In a democracy where a multitude of people exercise in person the legislative functions and are continually exposed by their incapacity for regular deliberation and concerted measures to the ambitious intrigues of their executive magistrates, tyranny may well be apprehended on some favorable emergency to start up in the same quarter, unquote. And there, of course, was always the danger of democratic powers themselves being unchecked and disintegrating into mob rule. If 51% of a group of people decided that they needed to enslave the other 49%, well, that's pure unchecked democracy in action. In a similar manner, though, with different results, when there were attempts at limiting the power of the state legislators, the members were often only able to serve short terms, sometimes as short as a year before they had to face the electorate. This gave them inadequate time to be able to investigate problems or deliberate before making decisions, and thus legislation was often made in haste, resulting in very flawed law. At times, good laws may have been produced, but if the electorate did not see quick beneficial results, pressure was put on the legislators to rescind the laws before they had been allowed adequate time to take effect. One example where the executive acted efficiently while the legislature remained barely moved, was in Massachusetts during Shays' Rebellion. Governor James Bowdoin acted decisively, yet with restraint with the state's military preparation, while, according to one source, quote, the House of Representatives remained in the same pacific disposition towards the insurgents, unquote. This witness goes on to say that while the public were in danger, the legislature were unmoved and safe from harm. Their behavior was so ineffective that, quote, there also began to arise another class of men who gave very serious apprehensions to the advocates of a Republican form of government. They were almost ready to assent to a revolution in hopes of erecting a political system more braced than the present and better calculated in promoting the peace and happiness of its citizens, unquote. The Constitution's prescription for a better separation of powers were the three branches checks on each other. Thus, the legislative could limit the executive branch by having the ability to impeach and put the president on trial, overriding his vetoes, having to give consent to executive appointments, owning the power of the purse, where the president would have to depend on Congress to finance anything, and finally, the power to declare war. He could also check the judicial branch by getting to approve judicial nominees ability to try and impeach judges, ability to create and set jurisdictions of courts inferior to the Supreme Court, and could set the size of the Supreme Court. The executive checked the legislative by having the ability to veto laws passed, could break ties by voting via the vice president, could make recess appointments, and call one or both houses into session in the case of emergency. By being able to appoint federal judges and pardon anyone convicted of a crime, the executive limited the judiciary. The judicial branch checked the legislative by getting to review the constitutionality of laws, having lifetime appointments, and not allowing their pay to be reduced. And against the executive, the chief justice would preside during the Senate trial of any impeachment process. The most powerful and thus more likely to be abused of the branches was the legislative. The constitution diverted from the state constitutions in this area by dividing the legislative into two parts, the House and the Senate. This rendered them, according to Federalist 51, quote, by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions and their common dependence on the society will admit, unquote. The House was elected directly by the people, and the Senate was, at that time, elected by the state legislatures. This was created not only to give states some say in the federal government, but have a legislative body that had stability in its longer terms, staggered elections, as opposed to the House, where potentially a completely new group of people could be elected every two years, and its choosing coming from a kind of professional political class. In this manner, the National Legislative Branch differs greatly from the state legislatures, the latter of which are simply directly elected representatives with no balance or other internal check or limit on itself. If you're still in an American history spirit, on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 269, we talk about the events that led up to the American Revolution. Then on 276, Dr. David Alvis tells us all about the dismal presidency of Franklin Pierce. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.